Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. Today's edition is being recorded at the high table in the cafeteria of the Wally Ballou College of Journalism here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we'll be talking about an ancient mystery, the death of Egyptian King Sekinenre of the 17th dynasty. Since the discovery and unwrapping of his mummy in the late 19th century, scholars have wondered, was he killed in battle with the hated rival Hyksos, the victim of an assassination, or something else? A new CAT scan of his mummy raises new possibilities regarding his rather gruesome fate. It also raises provocative questions about science, ethics, and snoring hippos. Let's talk about uh, snoring hippos. No kidding. Whoever thought that the expulsion of the Hyksos could be linked to, you know, uproarious behavior by the world's largest or heaviest (laughs) mammals. Though I guess that's not true because there are whales around. Well, that's true. But uh, apparently, like, they're the most dangerous or most vicious or something. They are. They're very dangerous. In fact, in fact, here, I'll do this. When I was on the Zambezi, (laughs) (laughs) we found a baby hippo with huge tooth marks in it that had killed it. And the tooth marks were from another hippo. Oh, my. Yeah. And apparently the the guide told us that this often happens with hippos. If a male hippo recognizes that a baby hippo is not his or believes it's not his, he will kill it. Wow. Yeah. Harsh. yeah, that is harsh. But I like the fact that these <coughs> that these Egyptian kings, both of the Hyksos and non-Hyksos variety, could speak a language that they all understood. <laughs> Hippos are making noise; it's got to stop. They all recognized that that was, you know, they all understood what they were talking about. Right. Right. Um, Should we back up in case our listener doesn't understand what we're talking about? Yes. And uh, point out. All that's in the introduction. Oh. If you you had only listened. (laughs) Well, I didn't. But yeah. Uh, I I was just, I was just thinking that we should, we should clarify that um, there are two kings in Egypt. Egypt is divided. Um, The North. Who was king and who wasn't king? Right. Right. Really? Actually, and actually at this period of time, I believe that Nubia also had uh, moved north and had its own sort of dynasty that was operative. Right. Um, So Egypt is actually three. Right. At least. Yeah. So we only really really pay attention to to the main guy, who the guy who claims to be the main guy in all these dynastic 
periods. I don't know. We pay a lot of attention to the Hyksos. Yeah, I mean, we pay them the right kind of attention. <laughs> it's well, is, it the, is it the kind of attention that they want? I don't know. They are they are attention seeking. I feel they, um, they are attention seeking. Yeah, they have that all that funky weaponry, and uh, you know they're a little. Yeah. They've, got, they've got real moxie. They're set up their own capital city, um, and they you know they, yeah. They do, they are attention seeking. I've always felt torn about the Hyksos because on the one hand, I really like them because they're Canaanites and you study Canaan and you study Canaanites. And I studied a lot of this period of Canaanites and here they are coming down into Egypt. And on the other hand, I'm kind of afraid of them because mm. they're, you know, warlike conquerors and they're not just nice little Canaanites in their own hometowns. Well, they're, they're not so warlike because they've been around for hundreds of years. It took them a very long time. That's, right? that's true. The whole migration process starts somewhere as early as 2000, 1900 certainly. Yeah, and yeah. they don't really assume any, any uh, real political power until the 17th century. Right. right now. And, and so there is a whole period of time where they're just sort of, you know, doing their thing. They're, you know, migrating down with their herds, the whole Beni Hassan tomb painting right. kind of uh, scenario. They're wearing their beautifully dyed garments and they've got their donkeys and they're settling in. And it doesn't seem, they don't seem to be a real problem. Right. Um, well, no. let's wait a second, though. No, they are a real problem. Or they're seen as a real problem, right? Because people are building walls against them coming in or walls against Asiatics coming in, and they're writing these wacky execration texts against that's, them. That's true, though the execration texts are against Canaan proper. That's true, but I've always assumed it's against Canaan proper because all these Canaanites are coming in as, as these... Ah. Yeah, yeah. I, see, I've always thought that there was a lot of in and out migration to places like the Delta from mm. elsewhere, but certainly Canaan, because, you know, we have episodes in the early Bronze Age of, you know, Canaanite Egypto relations. We have all of this um, Hyksos stuff beginning around 2000 or certainly 1900. So I, my feeling is that there's always been movements of, especially of pastoral groups, and that initially it wasn't seen as a problem until they sort of settled in and took political power and started to started to shave off uh, important places in Egypt, you know, proper. Right, right. Alex, uh, do you have any uh, feelings about Because we could go back and forth all day, clearly. <laughs> Peaceful infiltration leads to dynastic conflagration. Ooh. <laughs> A poem by Alex H. Jaffe. <laughs> Whereas Egyptian liberation leads to imperialist perturbation. Wow, and I got a, I got a million of them, but I, but I, I mentioned this because in the first line of of this uh, scholarly article, <clears throat> computed tomography study of the mummy of King Sekenenreta the second colon new insights into his violent death. The first line is um, Sekenenreta the second comma the brave, circa fifteen fifty eight to fifteen fifty three. And so even today, he's got his reputation as being the brave liberator. And I think that that's very, it's very interesting. He's not some poor schmuck who got captured 
and subsequently was hacked to death, but he was the beginning of this national liberation movement that even resonates here um, a billion years later. But wasn't that all retroactively applied? I mean, I've, I read that with great interest that they sort of, that there's this identification of Second Enre as the beginning of a, the, you know, Braveheart, <laughs> the yeah. Egyptian version. <laughs> You know the beginning of the of the line who were, who was going to expel the Hyksos, but in essence, he wasn't too successful. A right. I'm sure he wasn't alone in among the Egyptian royal family in wanting to expel the Hyksos, and the position the um, you know we have his immediate um, followers. What's it? Uh, um, and Kamosi, and then Akhmose, yeah, you know, yeah. they did the same thing. So I, I don't necessarily know if the if this particular individual should get so much claim and attention. Um, it's interesting. He reigned a short period of time. Yeah. He was grossly unsuccessful. Right. I mean, this guy just got, you know, hacked to bits. And, and then sort of as a message in a kind of soprano-like fashion, you know, the Hyksos didn't keep him and just, you know, dishonor him by burying him, uh, you know, in some horrible place in the Delta or at Avaris itself or anything like that. They actually sent him back as if to say, you know what, see what we did to this guy? It's gonna be even worse the next guy that shows up. That's so, actually, go ahead. Yeah. No, so that, that's it. So that I don't, I think a lot of this is, you know, sort of retroactive hagiography. We only have the Egyptian version of this. That's true too. Then, then and now. And then it was like, they're complaining about the hippopotami and, <laughs> and they leave out the part where they hacked our guide to death right. and sent him back. But they didn't uh, leave it out. They actually didn't leave it out because they mummified him and they buried okay. him. So right. that means that all of those people involved in that process, and certainly the elite knew, right? Like, right. oh my God, dad, look what happened to dad. Right. <laughs> he's, he's, actually, he's actually like um, Sonny Corleone. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Look, what they, yeah. look at what they did That's to my good. boy. Exactly, exactly. And they mummified him as best as, as, best as, as they could. Right, but really, there's only so much you can do, and then, and then you know they go they go to the mattresses, but it takes another generation or two until Egypt is right. Is but but wait, but back back up, you two, back up, because so so we JP, what you said is really interesting that they didn't keep the body, they sent it back, but we actually don't know we don't know what happened there. And I keep thinking of various portions in the Iliad, you know, bodies getting dragged around, begging to have bodies returned, having truces so you can collect bodies from the battlefield. So I was kind of assuming that he was hacked to death, left mm -hmm. on the battlefield during a break in fighting. And then when they had a second, three days, four days, a week later, the um, the Southerners, the the, the his his um, kin from Thebes, um, came and rescued his his hacked up body. Putrid smelling awful body. Exactly. See, I think the way they describe it. I'm sorry, Alex. Let me just finish this, and then the way they describe it is that 
he was uh, handcuffed in some way or shackled and and killed. And that he was not just killed, but he was, you know, really right. destroyed, right. right? And in my sense, whether they left him on the battlefield or whether they handed him over, they certainly had to know he was the king. Yes, yes. And they certainly made the decision to advertise the fact that they, you know, horribly maimed his his body. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe it's a small point whether they sent him back or left him on the battlefield. But I think the the result was the same thing. They advertised the fact that they completely dominated and showed mastery over the Egyptian king. That's that's a good point. That's a good point. And you know what else? So the Egyptians who never like to admit defeat and who'll turn all defeats into victories. So they're not going to write about the fact that he was completely massacred and, and well, captured and then massacred. Uh, they're going to ignore that in their texts. So the only thing that they wrote about later on was the terrible hippopotamus insult, <laughs> which I do feel like somebody needs to spell out. I don't know what you've said in our introduction. Who, who speaks here, for the hippopotami, really? Very true. Very true. Um, <laughs> the, the, we need a hippopotamus whisperer here. <laughs> but it's important to point out that um, you know, if we're if we're looking at the chain of the chain of evidence in this um, mummy murder medicine mystery, <laughs> oh, man, you've been you've been hard at work. Yeah, I got there's there's no there's no evidence for what happened to him between the time he was mummified and the time well the time he was killed and the time he was mummified there's a there's a gap there and then he shows up in 1881 in Dar el Bakri with all the other <clears throat> royal uh, mummies of the the middle and especially new kingdom. Right. And then he has the misfortune to be unwrapped <laughs> by by these, you know, 19th century hack, you know, physicians and things who think that they can figure it all out. So we don't know what happened to him. How long did he lie there? Did they was he buried on the, the battlefield and then exhumed sometime later by by his own boys uh, when they finally liberated Egypt? Or was I, don't he think he was ex I don't think he was buried and exhumed because they would have seen that in, but, but, okay. Oh, um, Gaston Masparo would have figured that no, part out. No, he wouldn't have, but these guys who just did the CAT scan would have. <laughs> well, but that, that's, the, that's the whole time thing. That they figured yeah. out with this CAT scan <clears throat> that he was not only mutilated on his face and head and neck, but because of his hands being all bound together, which right. nobody really could see. What's and his the word? I believe it's called a ca cadaveric spasm. <laughs> and we leave that to the imagination of our listener. So, so there, th that's, that's his last moment that we understand until he shows up really in 1881. Right. Yeah. And... Well, we know that he was buried in a royal tomb, presumably with everybody else in the Valley of the Kings. And he was then ex exhumed in what year was that? In, in the 16th, no, in the 10th century BC when the entire cache of royal mummies was moved for their own safety to Dar al-Bahri. Uh, so we do know parts of what was going on there. Um, what I never knew or never thought about, but probably never knew, 
was that he, um, you know, he's he he firmly in our nomenclature is part of the Middle Kingdom, and he's buried with these official New Kingdom kings, of whom he is, of course, the the father of the first couple. But well, he's the father of Kamos, and he's the father of Amos. Um, so he counts. You know, maybe Menetho got his dynasty wrong. You know, we don't know where they divided things up. So he counts as one of the the heroes of getting rid of the Hyksos, maybe. Well, starting the process. Starting the process. Right. Being the great liberator. Right, right. Because I never think of him. My my only association with him <laughs> since I undergrad. Never think of him. <laughs> I, I, always... I, I my thoughts dwell on him. Okay. My What's thoughts don't dwell on him all? except for the hippopotamus. Right. But now they People will. Think more about this. the hippopotami than about him, really. So why don't you tell the story of the hippopotami? But the the letter he that yeah. uh, he's he's sitting down in uh, in Thebes, stewing, I suppose. Right. And he gets a letter from the Hyksos king, writing from hundreds of miles to the north, saying, "Hey, shut those snoring hippos up! I can't sleep." <laughs> Right. And this was like the big throwdown. That's right. Or at least according to this, this interpretation that we're, we're talking about. Um, this is an insult, right. I tell you. Right. And he took, he took counsel. <laughs> Nobody complains about my snoring hippopotami except for me. And once he took counsel, that was it. They were going to fight this out. Right. Right. And this means war. The first decision Second NRA ever made. Right. And I do like this as the big throwdown because otherwise, why would this hippo text have been preserved in the first place if it didn't start something big off? So um, it's not just one of many insults, it's probably a significant insult. Well, I, I've never heard a hippo snore. Do uh, they snore or do they roar? Um, well, they certainly roar. Uh, oh, they're, no, so the, for the voices of the hippos do not allow deep sleep to come to me, the king Apophis up in- when I was when I was on the Zambezi. Yes. <laughs> I didn't get a, a moment's sleep. We would, we would paddle past pods of hippopotami. Wow. And we would try to, you had to stay very clear of them. And as long as you did, they wouldn't do anything to you. But when they would, you know, surface and throw their heads back, they would make a lot of noise. Oh, it wow. was very loud. Wow. Yeah. Were That's, they scary? Did you like... Well, there's a fascination with large mammals. I mean, at least among the males in the human population, there's a fascination with large mammals. Rhinos, hippos, elephants, these are all, you know, extraordinary creatures. Right. And so there was that level of fascination. Um, there's also the, you know, basic fascination that you're, uh, you know, that you're paddling past wild animals. That's just uh, in and of itself, its own sort of, you know, deeply, um, evocative kind of experience, so. Right, which is actually really interesting in this context because that's why they were keeping hippopotami in this pool in Thebes in the first place, because they were well, pets we that they were doing king. That. What? That's, that's just an accusation. <laughs> oh, I've always assumed that they really were keeping hippopotami there. Because well, there have been, they're, they're, well, in the New Kingdom, there are these big pools in some of the palaces in, in Thebes. Um, I guess I've assumed that some of them had animals in them. Well, there were certainly hippos in the Nile. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll backpedal. Let's hope so. <laughs> having hippos in the airport, say. <laughs> but, well, it's, I think it's, it all speaks to 
to various kinds of imagery and language that we don't quite appreciate anymore about you, the, you know, the relationship between kings and, and power and the, the, the natural world. You, second NRA down in, in Thebes, think that you're so powerful, but you can't shut up your, your snoring hippo. And right. this, is, this, is a great, this is a great insult because you, the, the bearer of you're mod, not, are supposed to keep uh, the universe in balance and keep all animals. Right, you're alive. not keeping order. Uh, you know, this is, the, this is the great royal ideology of both Mesopotamia and Egypt, that kings keep order, <laughs> meaning kings keep order over the natural world. But and, how do we even know that, that uh, Apophis sent this letter? Well, we don't, but don't you want to assume that he really did? You think, uh, you think, you think there was some kind, of, some kind of Hyksos troll at work? <laughs> I, I think it's like, you know, it's like the Zimmerman telegram from <laughs> saying that Germany is going to invade the United States from Mexico that got, helped get the U.S. into World War I. Um, well, that's, that's actually good. I'm going to write that down. Um, <laughs> but, uh, well, I, the, I, all we know is that the Egyptian tradition, which wrote this kind of stuff down, thought that, you know, here, here's an insult that, here's an insult that we can write down for the ages. Yeah. The whole, maybe the whole thing is being retconned, you know, Eventually they expel the Hyksos. Now let's, you know, now let's develop a whole big elaborate backstory. And, you know, somebody at the table, at the writer's table was related to um, Second Enray and said, and said, no, no, no. It's Second Enray who started all of this because of that whole hippo letter. And everyone else is, you know, saying, yeah, yeah, it's the hippo letter, of course. The great, you know, the great hippo letter. I mean, but I think a lot of Egyptian history is, is retconned. And what, 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 history, what history isn't retconned? I mean, honestly, I mean, anything that's being written contemporaneously generally gets undone after 10 or 15 or 20 years of slightly more dispassionate analysis. So that's the big difference between, you know, writing, you know, political science and writing history. Political science, all of that stuff has, is very ephemeral, right? right. Um, you know, you see an event, someone writes about it. And then it disappears. That the writing and the analysis. Journalism with footnotes. Right, because it's yeah. it, because it's wrong because it doesn't have that it doesn't have that time lag that you can sort of put different pieces of evidence together and sort of look at things in more macroscopically and with a with a little bit more um, you know time and space. Right, right. These um, are very good arguments that I'm going to use the next time I have a political science major that I want to convert into a history major. Well, you know what they call political science writing, desktop writing, because, you know, what, you write about whatever's on your desktop. Mm, right, right. And you don't analyze it. You can't analyze it. Well, you can't you analyze it. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, so so do, we not, do we not want to assume that it, is a real, it was a real letter? I, I want no, to I would like to. I would like to assume that any letter that talks about Cacophony from hippopotami should be taken at face value. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and it's, it's really our number one historiographic principle <laughs> right. for, for our podcast. We take all hippo related. Exactly. You know, <laughs> uh, I, would be, I would be willing to say we take all megafauna. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. I would be well with that. Yeah. yeah. We Very have to reasonable. find another story that relates to something large. <laughs> right. 
How about the whole malodorous, uh, you know, aspect of Second Enray's um, uh, uh, corpse, mummified yeah. corpse? That was kind of fascinating. That yeah, that bro gets gets in front of it and he just starts unwrapping and it smells awful. Right. I mean, that in and of itself would, you know, send me back into an archaeological square and, and out of the out of the back room. Right. It's a nice, warm sun beating down on your head, killing all germs and odors, archaeological square. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so spraying a little Febreze. <laughs> right. Everything. Like a little oh. blade thing. <laughs> yeah, but this is part of this is part of the the the, the story. I mean, we, and, and we'll assume that uh, that uh, Gaston Masparo, the general director of antiquities, and Daniel Fouquet, who claimed to be a physician. Uh, <laughs> oh, you'll believe the hippopotamus story, but the, <laughs> but Fouquet claimed. Claim. Uh, I want to see this guy's diploma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but it you know it comes in it, it comes in a period. It's really the the almost the height of the period when. Europeans are unwrapping mummies by the right. by the dozens, the millions, yeah. and mummies are showing up at you know medicine shows in in Wyoming, and there's a brisk trade in in mummies, and they're being popped from one one coffin into another, and they're being tossed into the engines of of steam trains propelling up and down the Nile Valley. So, you know, the mummy the mummy is the thing. The mummy is the, the the mummy is the medium is the message. Ooh, oh wow, that's like your third one today. Wow. Um, yeah, and I and we should also note that Maspero himself had almost certainly unwrapped more than one mummy by the time he got to Second Enray. This was not his first rodeo. It was not his first mummy. So. This is not his second Second Enray. <laughs> this is probably his four hundredth Second Enray. Yes, exactly. So he's he's uh, he's he's experienced the various odors that can come along with a regular old mummy, and this was a surprise to him. This was particularly mal mal particularly malodorous. Mal. malodorous. <laughs> so um, <laughs> wait a second. Second second Henry stink sends. <laughs> I'll get back to you. I'll work on that one. <laughs> Um, yeah, but these guys, they, okay, they, they, they unwrapped a lot of mummies. They knew something about medicine. They could recognize a vicious head wound when they, when they saw it. The, I'm always struck by just the sheer chutzpah of these, especially 19th and early 20th century guys, <clears throat> these, you know, medicine men unwrapping mummies by the millions and thinking, oh, you know, we have a firm grip on their, on their biology, on their, on their race, on their, you know, health, health and welfare. And uh, without thinking about any consequences of, of being exposed to oxygen, et cetera, um, that's kind of. No, without anything, without any ethical consideration. Oh, here's a dead guy. We're going to just. Sure. Yeah. But I, I don't think this time in Western history is the height of ethics. Right. No, not yeah. particularly. Think of what they're doing to to live people, let alone you know, well, mummified people. Right. That's true. That's so. True. I think it fits neatly into, you know, sort of a colonial reading of all of this. Absolutely. Um, um, yeah, whether it's making extinct bison or unwrapping, you know, millions of of uh, of mummies. 
it's it, they feel entitled. Yeah, yeah. And emboldened. And calling him Second Henry the Brave, which I don't know that he's, is, is that title attested anywhere? Well, I thought, I thought that was part of the terms, I thought that was part of the name Second Henry. Oh, okay. What, what does so that mean? His, the names are very long. They would never fit yeah. on envelopes if you had to send them mail. No. Right, um, right. <clears throat> Yeah, so this is not necessarily a post-colonial reading as such. Um, yeah, the name the name means the one whom Ra has made brave. Ah, okay. Oh, okay. So, so he that was the name given to him way that back his, in the day. Yeah, right. That was his royal that, name. That was that was the name that his that his mummy sewed into his you know the band of his underwear when right. she sent him to camp. No, no, no. That that no the name. Oh, that was the name that later. would be sewn into his linen underwear would be Tao. Okay. Yeah. Right. Which means Thoth is great. Oh, okay. Okay. And I wonder if 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 Thoth, the ibis-headed god, hated hippos. I wonder if there's some enmity in the animal world between ibises and right? Isn't Thoth ibis an ibis? I think so. Yeah. Um, the only hippo god I know of is is oh, what's her name? She's a god of fertility. Tausret, I believe. Not Sobek. What? Not Sobek. Oh, maybe that's an. Isn't that the god of the Nile? I I could be wrong. I have to look that up now. Oh no, that's crocodile. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sobek what? is the god of the Nile, but Tauret or Taus. Yeah. Yeah. She's right. a hippopotamus god of fertility. Um. Yeah. 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 I got that right. Um. So. So. Well, that's actually interesting. So we could play with that, although I don't think it's true that maybe it was, you know, making fun of, of the fertility of the Southern legitimate dynasty. Um, that would have been a very meta joke for those for those things <laughs> to make. That's true. They probably didn't know the Egyptian gods that well. And, well but, the, but all of this is a kind of uh, very right. meta. Yeah, there is because a lot. There's yeah. only like a bunch of guys who can read in the first place. And right. they're the whole the whole of Egyptian history is basically a, the writer's room at a, at a long running sitcom right. or, where they're just like, oh, you know, back in season 487, <laughs> episode 12,000, we did this and, right. like, oh, oh, you know, we got to got to triangulate somehow. We got to work this character back in. Right. Well, exactly. let's, so let's talk, though, about what what uh, Maspero and then um, others later found. So Maspero unwraps him. And then like 10 years later, some other guy, G.E. Smith, um, looks more closely at the embalming. Oh, G.E. Smith was the head of the Saturday Night Live band <laughs> in, the, in the 80s. Well, then he had a very long life and, and several careers. <laughs> married to Gilda Radner, um, briefly. Um, and I believe that he was the one who um, first noted that he probably decayed before he was embalmed. And then poor second Henry was x-rayed in the 1960s and then he was CAT scanned in 2021, or maybe 2020. And um, I wrote to him- He had good, an appointment. He had good medical. Yeah. <laughs> Many centuries of lots of different procedures. That, that's a very good point. I hope he's gotten reimbursed by now. Uh, but here, I wrote down a list of all his wounds, and I'd like to read that list out. <laughs> Let it be read. Get into the record, please. Um, 
in, in general head injuries, including a 2.7 inch gash on his forehead, a stab wound at the base of his skull, a 1.5 inch, inch slash above his right eye. Um, and um, all of them are wounds that seem to have occurred to him in a supine position. He's somehow <coughs> on his back or, or in a kneeling position, but leaning, leaning back. And what is- The last so, thing you see will be my face. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what's crucial is there are no offensive wounds. And um, then there's the thing that you said before, Alex, that because we can tell that his hands were bound during some part of this horrible execution process because they, they um, spasmed into a still clenched um, position um, different than rigor mortis, which our, our listener, assuming he or she is a scientist, could, could understand clearly there's a difference between this and rigor mortis. So, um, so all this stuff done to him when he could not defend himself and uh, he didn't defend himself. Um, plus, plus the latest CAT scanning results uh, show the details of some of these wounds, including the fact that the slash above his right eye seems to have been made um, by a weapon that would have matched a Hyksos style or a Canaanite style battle axe, which is the, um, the, the I don't know, the nail in the coffin. In, no, that's, that's the wrong <laughs> expression. But well, I think the, that's uh, the wrong expression. <laughs> Yeah, this is a, a real a real Game of Thrones scene. Yeah. If there ever was one. Yeah. And, and and at the other end, it's a real kind of CSI Thebes yes. <laughs> yes. kind of scene. But exactly. I think I think one thing that we really need to comment on is that all of these Egyptian kings, they're really short. <laughs> these guys are really little. Like I think second N who apparently is one of the taller of them. At some point there's a bunch of statistics on the heights of all of these mummified kings. He's on the order of like five, five. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I think that just needs to be appreciated. That's you know, true. That, that, <laughs> that we're basically looking at a modern population of, you know, sixth graders. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is he, he probably couldn't dunk. <laughs> or, or if he could, well, he probably could dunk. He was probably the only person in Egypt who could dunk. And everybody is going, yeah, okay. <laughs> you had to really lower the lower the net for him. Right. Right. But the Hyksos were not much taller. They were the same. Presumably. I just want to make sure everyone realizes that we're dealing with a very diminutive population here. Right. Like you shouldn't be thinking of these people battling each other in any other terms than everyone's about five three to five five. <laughs> That's a very that's a very astute point. And, and maybe this has a you know broader explanatory value that all these short people kind of felt short rulers in particular felt that they had to adopt excessive hostility and violence because they just kind of felt <laughs> short and inferior and threatened. So they right. all had Napoleon complexes. Right. And they all had those statues made larger and larger and larger. Good point, very good point. Right. I don't think we have any statues of Second Enray though. I've never seen one. And that might speak to the fact that at the time he, he was not well, highly regarded. Right. Because if he was contemporaneously understood as the initial liberator of the Hyksos, you would 
think that yeah, yeah, that's a good point. There would be a few, yeah. there would be a few statues with, you know, that are eight feet tall and you know portraying him at the age of twenty with you know, yes, word six pack and all of that. Right, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and I'm trying to remember if there are any statues of Kamos. I'm not sure there. I'm not sure I've seen them, but Amos for sure has a statue. Um, pretty sure. I don't know. It's it's that world of it's that world of Egyptian objectology. <laughs> object we encourage our listener to look that up and and get back to us. Yeah, there you go. But but that's an interesting. That's a very interesting point. That in the moment. I guess because they were too busy organizing the liberation of Egypt and because they had very um, kind of ambiguous feelings about, or maybe about Second Enray, the guy who didn't quite get the job done. <laughs> right. No statues for you. Right. By the time Egypt is liberated, um, certainly in the 18th dynasty, uh, you know, you got statues out the wazoo of all these, of all these guys, but you know, the, the, the old timers who started the process, nobody gets a statue retroactively. Right. Yeah, and that is interesting. No statues retroactively. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But on the other hand, uh, you know, certainly during the New Kingdom, all these guys are, and, and gals, are stealing statues from each other. Um, yep. So... <clears throat> And all they have to do, because the statues are so stylized, is just really, you know, change the... Right, a little bit of white out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, just go up with a chisel. Horem head becomes... Eye becomes... Horem head becomes... Tut becomes... Right. And you don't really even have to do it very well, because Egyptologists have been able to see what the older names were before. Yeah. Right. Um, wait, so let's go back to what you guys were saying before. So he's... He's horribly destroyed. This is just really horribly destroyed on the battlefield. Oh, yeah, well, that's a good point. Does what happens to the body then? So I was saying that he's lying there for a couple of days, um, and then what happens? Well, I, I think I think the 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 interesting point is not what happens, whether he was left or whether he was buried and exhumed or sent in a in a pickle jar. I think the interesting thing is that he was he was worked over. Yeah. They, they, they did a job on him as if to say, um, we're sending a message. Right. Yeah. And, and this is, this is something very, this is a very rare moment that is, that is preserved. Now we, we certainly see it in, in Egyptian history and all over the ancient Near East when statues get mutilated, right. usually after, after the fact, Right. But here's the guy and they, you know, they did a number on him. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I find the whole reconstruction here that, um, that he had been captured and bound and executed to be very persuasive. He wasn't assassinated in bed. Right. He wasn't like, you know, wasn't pulled from his horse and during battle and put up a brave fight. No, he got right. it in the face. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and they didn't. And actually, that's an interesting point. Because unlike statuary that often does get beheaded and you know put into a pit and split apart, um, he's he they they really you know they really mess with him. Yeah. But they don't dismember him. They don't chop him up. 
Um, that's true. Actually, they, that's an interesting point. They, they want, I, I, it comes back to this idea. They sent a message, like yeah. whether they returned the body or left the body, here's the body. Here's what we did to the body. I mean, you know, this, you know, we, we maimed this person. We maimed your king. Um, we brought dishonor, you know, right. to your whole enterprise. Um, look, at, look at what we're able to do. Um, and yet he retained the name the brave. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe the stupidly brave or, <laughs> or, or something like that. But how do you spell that? Battle to save his honor about the hippopotami issue. Right. And he, which is really quite stupid. And then he gets completely destroyed in. in yeah, the exactly. He's he's Sonny Corleone who gets who gets nailed at the toll booth. Right. And uh, but then retroactively, people have to put him into this into this historical setting he was the one who set the set the path set the families on the path to you know settling all the family settling all the family business well it's liberation theology for egypt which then you know at some point the biblical authors cribbed for their own version of liberation theology right sort of putting the whole story on its head Um, right but it's all about liberation theology if you're part of a liberation and the liberation gets pulled off then you know you will be feted and honored and and uh, even worshipped. Yeah, whatever <clears throat> whatever works. But it, but it, it, you know, in in contrast, when the Egyptians take prisoners, um, they have no they also have no compunctions about massacring large numbers, and they're hacking off hands, they're hacking off heads, they're counting them all up, they're hacking yeah. off other things. Um, <laughs> And and making piles, and you've got the scribes with the you know standing sideways, <laughs> right. having all this up on their little calculators. Um, you know, this seems a little bit a little bit different. This is personal. This is personal. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Right. They didn't cut off his hands. They didn't cut off his head. This is this is personal. Yeah. Right. Uh, now, where now in which which neo Assyrian king is ha- is shown in. Uh, in his garden, having having tea with the head of the Elamite king that in the tree. Ashurbanipal the second. Right. So there's also a kind of personal personal message. Right. Interesting, sort of kind of a parallel. But many hundreds of years later. Many hundreds of years later. But this is. Okay. No, this is this is brutal, and this is sending a message. But unfortunately for the Hyksos, it only made. The rest of the royal family angry, and they tried again. And the you know the the second time <coughs> they expelled those Hyksos from from Egypt. A mere one generation after Second Enri was was brutally murdered. Right. Yeah, but it's also I, I think they were angry to begin with. I was going to say well, this you know this is sort of the Anal school versus you know the the uh, I don't know what do you want to call it the political expedient school. This was bound to happen. Egypt was always going to try to expunge any foreign presence on their sacred land. So whether it happened on, you know, whether it happened, whenever it happened, it was going to happen at some point. That's true. Um, and that's why I, I, I think that there's a lot of retconning with, you know, this, this notion of second Enray uh, as the initial liberator of Egypt or the one who started it all off because it was going to happen at some point. They weren't going to tolerate the Hyksos in the in the Delta forever. And the tradition 
because the king is the one who balances, keeps everything in balance, and because they're the rightful sort of center of the of the universe centered on the king it's almost like he's at the top of a i don't know a pyramid or something um, <laughs> but you know i don't know how angry they were on a day-to-day basis as as people as a royal family you know i'm sure they had their bunch their ne'er-do-wells and their you know their but slackers but be like not sorry go ahead go ahead but but i think the tradition has to portray all of these guys as being very aggressive, as as always being on on their game, because certainly in the in the preceding periods, um, the preceding couple of dynasties, thirteen, apparently uh, twelve, the end of twelve into thirteen, when things are really going to hell in a handbasket in yeah. Egypt, yeah, <clears throat> that's really the only time when you have the tradition representing any kind of weakness. In, in the land with, you know, occasional depictions of, of emaciated people wandering around <clears throat> and, you know, king, who was king, who wasn't king and king's going, I'm king, you know, you're not king. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and, and these, by, by these guys, the, the 16th, 17th dynasty, there's a real reactionary kind of aggression that's, yeah. that's setting in that takes off crazily in the 18th dynasty. Never again will anybody threaten Egypt because we're gonna go far afield and kick the crap out of them. Right, right, right. which they did successfully and kept it up for all of the 18th dynasty. But it's a changing world also because they're, they're beginning to find, you know, they're beginning to see other empires and see other empires as threats. And they're much more familiar with the topography and the, strategi- the strategy of needing to have buffer zones and needing to have these, you know, liminal spaces. So, so they, I think that's all part of the recognition of the Near East, you know, sort of becoming one highly, highly integrated area, as opposed to just integrated, let's say, economically with trade routes. But here we have real political integration where empires are butting up against each other and they have to take steps. We can't, we can no longer raid on a yearly basis. Now we have to set up an administrative apparatus and garrison troops because we know that they're the Mitanni and we know that they're the Hittites. And we know that if, if they think the way we do, that you know, they're gonna come bearing down on us. Right, but the other interesting thing about that and all that is 100% on target, but, but they, didn't, they hadn't experienced that yet at this particular moment. Right. When they're in, in conflict with the Hicks. This is the first time anyone really since prehistory has ever invaded and successfully taken over their land. I guess you have well, in prehistory, but- um, But they didn't, it wasn't an invasion. As yeah, okay, you're right, you're right, you're right. It was this kind of weird internal ethnic, and, the, and I don't want to get into the whole, who are the Hyksos? Oh, we know. Made. Who are the Hyksos who weren't the Hyksos? <laughs> exactly. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I think we should wait for who are the Hyksos just before just before Passover. <laughs> right. That's, uh, that's yeah. true. It's a, it's a good seasonal kind of, uh, kind of topic. Yeah. 
but we, we know, but we do know who the Hyksos are. And you know, Josephus was wrong. And they're not shepherds. They're they're these they're these people from the north. They're these people. They're these rulers from foreign lands. Oh, well, the no, they're these people from foreign lands who eventually get their their own acts together and create rulers or ruling kinds of mechanisms with big palaces and things. Right. Um, but it takes them a long time, and they themselves, these foreigners, have been around in the Nile Delta for hundreds of years. Right. right. And they just take advantage like, of internal weakness within the, um, you know, within the Egyptian state to right. um, exert a little bit of power, a little bit of emphasis, and become an autonomous entity. And right. the Nubians do the same from the south. Right. And, and I so think, go ahead. No. I think it was Kamos who follows Second Enray, who says in some royal poem, you know, there's a Nubian to my south and the Hyksos to my north and I, this Egypt, and squeezed in between. So they felt it acutely um, that they had gradually lost well, territory. Who's, who's they? They, the Theban <laughs> oh, don't, don't, oh, don't give me the who's they. I invented the who's they. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, you have this, because all all of Egyptian history has to fit into a into narrative um, linear, arc. yeah, and, yeah. And, and and there are arcs and there are tropes and there are conventions and uh, you know it's not as if we're getting a true picture from the Egyptian sources themselves. One dynasty gets pissed off at, at all the other dynasties because they think that they should be the dynasty that's in charge of the whole the whole um, territory. It's basically, it's basically mobsters. Um, in you know, it's it's the mafia in nineteen in nineteen fifty in in New York, and uh, they have this arrangement. It works for a while, but then one family gets irritated and uh, doesn't work doesn't work out. Uh, somebody's muscling in somewhere else. They You're think taking that over they all the linen the linen cleaning places. That's right. <laughs> they're, shaking, they're shaking down all the linen guys. Those are our right. guys. They're, and they're supposed to stay north of 125th Street, but now they're coming down. What's this uh, downtown business? You know, the pawn shops, those are ours. I think it's exactly the same, but the tradition that we have is, oh, you know, there's a hippopotamus that's making noise. And, and that's what set set sunny off and oh you know i'm squeezed in i can't but ultimately but there is a little bit more tangibility because ultimately you have complete reunification by the new kingdom and right. very you know well integrated central state that emulates earlier centralized states i mean and i think well yeah there's no myth to the centralized state in yeah. egypt yeah, I would agree with that, but that's, I, I agree with both of you, actually. I think it was sort of very, very mob, very mob-esque, but at the same time, this is a legitimate, it's a, it's a royal family that has claimed legitimacy for a good long time already. And you know what, there are other factions out there, but they want to keep their faction in power. So maybe that's why the second Henry had to make a move. He was afraid that uh, he, you know, his, his political policies needed to be aggressive. Otherwise somebody else was gonna seize power and say, I'm gonna throw out the Hyksos. You haven't done anything about the Hyksos. So he wanted to stop that should, from happening. Should have been second Henry the jumpy, not the brave. <laughs> <laughs> second Henry the overreactor. Yeah, really. 
the touchy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so is there anything else we need to say about Second Henry? No, I think we've done a good job with those little guys. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but I'm, I'm still interested in the, in, <laughs> in the fascination that we have with these guys. Well, hold it. Now, now we need to be a little honest, Alex. Do we really have a fascination with them? For, for years, we've decried the, the Egyptological obsession with objects. Well, now that everybody has decried the Egyptological obsession. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well. so we're having this argument for like 30 years. So. <laughs> but this particular story is very, very compelling. It is, it is. And, and there is the universal appeal of, of mummies. And this is a particularly gruesome mummy who I suppose resides in Egypt. I mean, right, that's where he is. Yeah, that's where they did all this uh, scanning. Right, yeah. okay. So, so yeah, so we're never gonna see him in person, but I don't really wanna see him in person. He seems, like I never could watch the Game of Thrones. It was too violent. So I feel the same way about Second Henry. Would you look at a mummy knowing that a big hook went up its nose and extracted its gray matter? Yeah, that's not so pleasant to think about. So yeah, I got a little problem looking at that. But when, you know, if you got a nice, really well put together mummy like Ramses II, um, something <laughs> like that, that's, that's fine. Um, he's a good looking, he's a good looking man. <laughs> yeah. And he's still got his hair all these years later. And that's always a little creepy. Well. Yeah, the hair and the nails are always creepy. Right, exactly, exactly, because they're so human. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, you know, we, we, we get all upset about, oh, you know, it's, it's a misrepresentation, it's a sensational, sensationalization when we see all these movies, Indiana Jones and, uh, and other kinds of contemporary movies with, which talk about archaeology. It's completely, you know, it's pure, uh, it's pure titillization if that's actually a word. Um, <laughs> and, and people think, oh, this is what, this is what, you know, it, it's, it's all about. But it's exactly the same thing. When you go to a museum and you look at a mummy and you read the thing and said, they pulled out his brain with a hook through his nose. It's no, it's no different than watching some kind of sensationalist movie that where everything is, is bizarre and out of context. Right. And, well, personally, I don't want to be on display like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't either. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't. No offense, but I don't think either one of you need to worry about that. <laughs> I, think, I think if that's if that's a personal concern, I'd like to I'd like to to, uh, to tell you that I think we're all going to be okay. No personal displays of any of us. Thank you. I feel much better now. <laughs> that's probably true. And, and and for these, but for these kings, it was probably probably not a bad fate in a way right they wanted immortality what kind of greater immortality could you have than being the, the biggest attraction that's uh that's a good in point. all these universal museums and maybe right. they wouldn't mind being unwrapped as long as they're in a temperature controlled environment and they're not going to decay which most of them are today right i mean isn't that the whole point of of um, mummification is preservation so well, I guess preservation so you can live in your body in the next life, but still, okay. <laughs> I think we're allowed a little latitude on that. Right. See, you really can't have everything. <laughs> you can have fame or you can have preservation. You really can't have both. Right, right. Um, All right. Well, maybe that's a good place to, on these kinds of deep ambiguities that characterize the human condition. We can put all of this to bed now. 
<laughs> like second N Ray himself, really. <laughs> his, his mission is accomplished. Yeah. Nice. Well, I'd like to think that we've all learned some valuable lessons here today. As always, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel for composing our theme music. And of course, we thank our sponsor, Gimbel's Department Stores, the sponsor of the famous Thanksgiving Day Parade. Select, don't settle, is their slogan. To get in touch, leave us a comment, send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 021 three, four.